Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm your frequent host and devoted producer, Chris Grayton. This is the final episode of our ongoing seventh season on Ottoman History Podcast. It's been quite a year for us. This is our 48th episode since mid-May last year. We'll be taking May off, but a new season of Ottoman History Podcast is coming back in June. We've got a lot of new, innovative material for you in the coming season. I'll be introducing a new investigative podcast series called Deporting Ottoman Americans, which focuses on the strange and sometimes heartbreaking stories of Ottoman-born migrants ordered to be deported from the United States during the Great Depression of the 1930s. One of our managing editors, Shireen Hamza, will also be offering select installments of her new Ventricles podcast series at Harvard University. In addition, we'll be publishing an introduction to the history of the Ottoman Empire with my University of Virginia colleague, Joshua White, as we adapt his popular From Nomads to Sultans lecture course to the podcast format. And these are just some of the new things that are already under production for Season 8 as we continue to offer interviews in English, Turkish, and French. I'd like to express some gratitude to all our scholar guests from Season 7, as well as our Ottoman History Podcast guest hosts and our many contributors. Special acknowledgement goes to our current editor-in-chief, Nir Shafir, our managing editors, Susanna Ferguson and Shireen Hamza, and our longtime contributors, Michael Talbot, Tylan Güngör, Matthew Gazarian, Samuel Dolby, Emily Neumeyer, Sachil Yilmaz, and Graham Cornwell. We thank our friends at Tumo in Paris, Aurélie Perrier and Dorothée Kalou, as well as Andreas Guidi and the folks at the Southeast Passage. Finally, I'd like to welcome our new 2018 OHP team members, Abdul Latif, Mariam Patton, Ella Fratantuono, Ishan Tailan, and Taylor Moore. For a full seven years now, Ottoman History Podcast has brought you conversations and interviews featuring students and scholars discussing new work on the history of the Ottoman Empire and beyond. In our first season of the podcast, most of our contributors, including myself, were graduate students engrossed in the exploration of historiography and primary sources in preparation for doctoral dissertations. Since then, many of our student contributors have become certified scholars in their own right, completing their PhD dissertations and publishing their research, and new generations of student contributors have joined the team. In this final installment of Season 7, we're bringing the student spirit back to the program in a big way, with a special collection of podcasts recorded by undergraduate students from the U.S. and U.K. about topics in early modern Ottoman history. The short clips that you're about to hear feature students from two innovative courses that give a special place to the podcast medium. The first group goes back to last spring when Professor Dana Sajdi offered a course at Boston College called Podcasting the Ottomans. In that course, podcasts served as both material and assignments. Professor Sajdi's students created their own podcast published on the Boston College website in a series called Stories Ottoman Objects Tell. Each one focused on a single material artifact of historical significance from the Ottoman period. The second group of podcasts comes from our own Michael Talbot, who teaches at University of Greenwich in the UK. In his course, focused on the urban life of the Ottoman Empire, students had the opportunity to produce their own podcasts about aspects of Ottoman society beyond the palace walls. Interviews with those student podcasters at both Boston College and University of Greenwich are available on our webpage, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. 
Selecting just a few representatives from among this set of well-researched and imaginative recordings was not easy. And I'd like to thank each of the University of Greenwich and Boston College students who took up the challenge of producing their own podcast on the history of the Ottoman Empire. I'd also like to thank Donna Sajdi and Michael Talbot for leading the way on this great initiative to make what we do here on the podcast an active part of learning in the university classroom. First up in our selection of student podcasts is an Ottoman history podcast spoof called Ottoman Mystery Podcast by BC students Matthew Nolan and Amber Voles. In the clip, Matt, a biology major, dons the hat of an Ottomanist to discuss the headgear of the Ottoman Empire's most recognizable sovereign, Suleiman the Magnificent. Through the lens of Suleiman's Venetian-made crown, our student guests explore Ottoman projections of power into the European political arena and cultural exchange between the Ottomans and their neighbors. Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Voles. Today we have a very special guest with us, scholar Matt Nolan, who will be presenting this episode's mystery object. Uh, Matt is currently doing research on the Crown of Suleiman the Magnificent. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you explain how you were led to this research on Suleiman in particular? Well, even before I shifted my focus onto Ottoman history, I'd always heard of Suleiman the Magnificent. I mean, with a name like Magnificent, it's pretty hard to ignore a legacy like that. However, through my research, I became much more impressed with the accomplishments he had achieved. He came to power in 1520 at 25 years old, and within a little more than a year, he'd already captured Belgrade, which had, was avenging a brutal Ottoman defeat that had happened there many years before, and putting the European powers on alert for the powerful Ottoman Empire they had previously overlooked. In the grand scheme of things, however, he was known to the Ottomans as the lawgiver, as he helped to reform the laws and system of justice in general in the empire. That's all very interesting about Suleiman, uh, but how did this research focus, shift focus from Suleiman himself to his crown? Well, my original goal was actually to discover the relationship between sultans and their grand viziers, their main advisor role. And I felt that there was no better combination than Suleiman and his grand vizier, Ibrahim Pasha. Ibrahim and Suleiman were actually great friends who essentially kind of rose to power together. Uh, while rumors on how they became so close differ, the most plausible story that historians believe is that pirates actually had captured Ibrahim in a raid and sold him to a Manician widow who helped teach him languages and history when she saw how intelligent he was. He was then sent to the palace school and was assigned as a page in Suleiman's service, where Suleiman noticed him and sought him out as a friend since they were both of same intellect and the same age as well. In fact, when Suleiman actually rose to power, many people saw that it was almost like a scandal with how close the Sultan was to what realistically was his slave at that time. But it was through this searching that I discovered that it was Ibrahim that sent the instructions to Venice about how to make this beautiful, ornate crown for Suleiman as a sort of gift. Um, during this time, one of the expectations of a prince was to be able to work with their hands. So as a child, Suleiman had had goldsmith training, and when he became a sultan, he started collecting gems, and actually had a huge collection that led Ibrahim to take some of that collection to put into the crown. Wow, that's a very interesting story about how the two of them sort of rose to power together. 
Um, for our listeners, can you actually describe this crown? And we'll be sure to include a picture on the page as well. Oh, of course. Uh, the crown was actually designed to be in the style of Titian, but also to be a way of intimidation for the rest of the countries fighting for power at this time, namely the Habsburg Empire and the Papal States. Um, Emperor Charles had just had his coronation as uh, Emperor of both Spain and the, Ro the Holy Roman Empire, and had used a crown similar to the style of the Roman Empires, and his coronation was very heavy on Roman symbolism. So this crown was almost designed to be more Greek in a way, and actually used some design ideas that had been used in Alexander the Great's crown in order to show the Habsburg that Although they had descended from what was the Roman spirit, the Ottoman Empire was also not to be forgotten to have been um, descended from that as well. I notice in the picture of the crown that it has four tiers. Uh, why did Ibrahim design it to look like this? Well, it's believed that the crown was given four tiers due to the fact that the Pope's crown had three. So this was kind of a sly like dig at... Uh, the, pap the papacy that the Ottoman uh, emperor was above them, was above the papacy in their power, that the empire of Ottoman was just more powerful, better at that time. Now that we know what the crown looks like and how it was commissioned, uh, what was the process of making it? Well, the crown itself was made in Venice by the goldsmith and jewelers there. And we also know through the receipts that the crown cost around 144,400 ducats and included 50 diamonds, 47 rubies, 27 emeralds, 49 pearls, and a large turquoise. And if that wasn't ornate enough, then it was also included in that price tag, a velvet-lined gilt ebony case. Well, of course. What's a crown of that sort of stature and um, decoration without a velvet case to oh, pull, it, pull it out of? Oh, of course. It's all about the show. Like I can't imagine how heavy this crown must have been with all that hardware, but we do know for a fact he actually did wear it from eyewitness testimony. And what sort of eyewitness accounts are you talking about? Well, when Suleiman was marching on Nish, um, two Austrian ambassadors came to negotiate an, arm an armistice with him, and it said that they were quite literally stunned into silence when they were brought into the Sultan's tent and saw the throne and crown that he had in that tent that he was wearing and sitting on at that time. And the reports of this account were actually Venetian, so maybe they might have been boasting about the beautiful crown they'd constructed. But there's also reports of similar meetings happening throughout Suleiman's reign, kind of like this, and that he would wear it to impress and kind of intimidate ambassadors that were coming towards him. So was the crown useful for any other sort of diplomacy, or... Um... Was it just used in a type of power play with only intimidation in mind? Um, this was definitely a huge boost in the Venetian-Ottoman relations. In fact, one of the people who worked on the crown in Venice was given a great job in the government. Um, his name was Alvise Gritti, and he was a jewel merchant in Venice at the time. And it was his duty to deliver the crown to the Sultan. And when he got there, he was rewarded with a job that was rumored to be the third most powerful position in the government at that time, behind only the Sultan and the Grand Vizier himself. And we know from a lot of history in the Ottoman Empire that the Venetians and the Ottomans had a pretty steady relationship. A lot of people going in and out from both empires. But it sounds like, from what you're telling me, that the crown was used both of as a carrot and a stick in 
some capacity, at least in terms of diplomacy. Of sort. That, that's a great way to put it, actually. Uh, Suleiman wasn't afraid to use this crown as intimidation, but also this really helps to show the amount of trade that went on with Venice at that time that really pushed the Ottoman Empire and Venice to be, like, allies. A lot of people look at the development of Venice at that time and said, like, if they hadn't had that trade path with the Ottoman Empire, they would have really been only a small fishing village, small coastal village at that time. So it's through that trade that Venice kind of rose to this power. And even during Suleiman's years when he was kind of knocking at the door at the time of... Um, the Europe. Like a lot of European leaders were really afraid of him, really afraid of what is called the golden age of the Ottoman Empire due to their strength in the army, due to the multiple military victories they had. So a lot of people look to Venice to think like if anyone's gonna kind of start the trend of standing up against Suleiman, it'll be Venice. But it seemed every time that Suleiman would lead this grand military campaign to attack at the gates of Europe, they just signed this big trade agreement with Venice. <laughs> Suleiman was actually great at like making sure when he left, there wasn't going to be a sneak attack at the time. Mm -hmm. Like He always took care of the rebellions in the southern states before he went after Europe or something like that. He made sure Venice was happy with the trade agreement he'd just had. So, for example, when like Belgrade fell and he kicked out the Knights of Rhodes from the Mediterranean out of their island fortress... Venice, Venice just simply decided to watch it happen because they almost sent a fleet, but there was an ambassador who was like, no, like, don't worry, we just signed this a trade agreement, we've agreed to not go after your land holdings. And Venice was like, well, if you're not going after our land holdings, then you can kick them out. Because the Knights of Rhodes, it was this uh, Christian military group that... Um, had an island in the Mediterranean Ocean, they would often like capture uh, Ottoman sailors on the trade routes. So Venice itself kind of looked at this and was like, well, they do kind of have a point there in kicking them out, and as long as we're fine, like it's okay. So a lot of people kind of looked down on this, what they called an alliance with the infidels in a way, but it was, uh, it was good for Venice, it was good for the Ottoman Empire. So while this crown came from Venice, I think it's a great representation in that while a lot of people think like, oh, why would anyone in Europe ally themselves with the Vene or with the Ottomans, like this crown helps show, well, Venice really profited a significant amount from the trade with the Ottomans at this time. Well, this has been very interesting, not only about the crown and how it was created and Suleiman's use for it, but also how it is sort of an example of the relationship between the Venetians and the Ottomans. Uh, well, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much for coming on our show, and I wish you the best of luck in your research. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Matt and Amber, for that great contribution. Moving on from the theme of the Ottomans and their neighbors, we turn to a recording by University of Greenwich student Tanya Skiba Bartholomew, who uses the recent Turkish adaptation of the hit Australian TV series Neighbors as an avenue into discussion of the early modern Ottoman Mahalle, the neighborhood, and what it tells us about the production of space in Ottoman cities. Neighbor, everybody needs good neighbors, just a friendly Stop Press, one of Australia's most successful exports, the television show Neighbors, has come to Turkey.
The Turkish adaptation called Komsula is based on storylines and characters from the Australian show. Contrary to the fictional Australian neighbourhood, which revolves around a suburban cul-de-sac in Melbourne that was built in the 1960s, the fictional neighbourhood in Komsula revolves around one of the oldest and most beautiful neighbourhoods in Istanbul, a neighbourhood that has been around since the early 16th century. Ottoman cities in the early 16th century, like most cities around this time, were quite small and only stretched two to three miles at most. They were densely packed with homes, businesses and religious institutions, plus accompanying infrastructure such as roads and water fountains. An integral part of this urban landscape were the residential areas or neighbourhoods, which were known as mahallas. They were mixed communities in terms of wealth and social class, and often in terms of ethnicity and religion. And as organic communities, both their composition and borders fluctuated over time. Each mahalla comprised of a place of worship, a public fountain, a couple of shops or a market that catered to the basic needs of the residents, and other institutions such as a haman or school. As most of the needs of the residents were met within the mahalla, they had little need to venture beyond it. Therefore, life for most urban Ottomans centred around the relationships they fostered within this localised sphere, which outside of the family became some of the closest, and in some cases akin to that of an extended family. This in turn led to a separation between public and private space within the mahalla. The concept of public and private space within the mahalla are represented in a photo from early 20th century Damascus. This image was captured by the American colony, a group of Americans who founded a Christian community in Jerusalem in 1881. At the beginning of the 20th century, they established a photo department as a commercial enterprise and spent the next 35 years documenting life in the Middle East. These images were sold internationally or used on postcards which they sold to the tourist trade in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, they were still outsiders looking in, particularly in relation to the fact that Damascus was over 200 miles away from their community in Jerusalem. And as strangers, and most likely male photographers, the types of spaces they could have photographed would have been limited. But despite the photo being taken in 1920, the old city of Damascus had changed little since the end of the early modern Ottoman era. The image of Straight Street in the old city of Damascus reveals a street lined with both shops and entrances to the first and second floor residences located above. A mosque and its minaret are also located further down the street. The thoroughfare is busy with people of various social classes. There's men in traditional dress, a man in a suit wearing a fez, a woman fully covered in a hijab and headscarf, and there's a young girl and boy playing in the street. In the foreground, the scene is being watched over by a seated man or shopkeeper, perhaps whose job it was to keep an eye on the comings and goings in the mahalla. Public space within a mahalla were defined as areas or spaces that were not residential, that provided for many people and that residents could enter without asking permission. Therefore, in this image, the public space is represented by the street, the shops and the mosque. Private space within a mahalla was essentially defined as a person's home, a place that could not be entered by uninvited people. Therefore, in this image, the private space is represented by the residences located above. However, there is another type of space represented here, and that's semi-private space that's neither public nor private. The households in this street would have most likely been collective, which meant that there were several rooms connected to a central courtyard, but with only one door for both residents and guests. Therefore, the entrances that led to the residences represented this semi-private space. 
The early modern Ottoman era spanned three centuries and encompassed vast territories with diverse cultures and equally diverse bases. Therefore, there is no simple way of classifying space in the Ottoman world. Leslie Pierce suggests that we focus on the concepts of inner and outer, or interior and exterior, rather than public or private. However, her study centred on the imperial harem, a space that functioned under different rules to that of the Mahalla. Plus, the language used by jurists in a 17th and 18th century collection of fatwas, known as the Book of Walls, denotes space, spaces such as functions of properties and roads and walkways as being either public or private. Nevertheless, the concept of privacy predated the Ottoman Empire and emerged in the early days of Islam. Muslim scholars from all schools of Islamic law agreed that residences should have space inaccessible to outsiders that would be protected by such law. In other words, whatever happened in one's home was one's own business. These ideas of privacy were supported by verses in the Quran, such as the following from the 24th surah, The Light. O you who have believed, do not enter houses other than your own houses until you ascertain welcome and greet their inhabitants. That is best for you. Perhaps you will be reminded. And if you do not find anyone therein, do not enter them until permission has been given you. And if it is said to you, go back, then go back. It is purer for you, and Allah is knowing of what you do. Despite this set of largely unwritten rules about social interaction within the Mahalla, there were a large number of violations, and these cases were brought to the Sharia court. One such case was brought to the Sharia court in Aleppo in 1762 by the residents of a local mahalla. Since the beginning of the early modern Ottoman period and in an attempt to manage its vast territories, the Ottoman state became fastidious record keepers. The records of the Sharia courts provide us with valuable information regarding the way in which the state treated those who violated societal norms. However, these records are mostly formulaic statements and only provide us with the offender's name, title and their resident mahalla, and sometimes their ethnicity and religion. Therefore, in terms of getting any context regarding these cases, we are dependent on the details provided by official Ottoman court scribes. The extended court record details the accusations of 15 residents in the mahalla of Eltun Boghar in Aleppo against two fellow residents, a son and his mother, with regards to the crime of procurement of prostitution. Under Sharia law, this was seen as the crime of zina, or unlawful sexual intercourse. However, these crimes were couched in euphemisms, and in this case with the terms strange men and strange women, which allowed for the omission of circumstantial evidence and the discretion of the judge in issuing punishment. Furthermore, the residents also call them evildoers, with loose tongues and harmful in their words and deeds, and demand their expulsion from the mahalla. 
the court ruled in the resident's favour and the son and his mother were removed. The record also notes that after their removal, the door of the house was sealed with clay, highlighting the loss of property incurred by the offenders. Interestingly, the court also details their first attempt at trying to prosecute the offenders through the governor of the city, who was able to rule independently of the Sharia court. However, he did not find in the residents' favour, and they were fined in accordance with the law that stated that residents were responsible for criminals who resided in the Mahalla. The Mahallas were also basic urban administrative units, and functions such as street and utility maintenance, lighting and surveillance were carried out by the residents and not the state. The residents were also responsible for policing the Mahalla. Therefore, if any criminal offences had been committed within the Mahalla, it was their responsibility to bring the offenders to court. Equally, the residents were responsible for turning in fellow inhabitants if they were suspected of having committed a crime. If they did not, the residents could be imposed with a hefty collective fine, as were the residents from the Mahalla in Aleppo. And so ends our whistle-stop tour of the early modern Ottoman Mahalla, a space where the distinctions between private and public were often fluid and overlapped. This highly protective space only allowed the familiar in and kept the unfamiliar out, and for that reason detailed primary sources describing and capturing life in the Mahalla are difficult to obtain. Instead we are left with little more than snapshots. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Tanya. Now let's move to another contribution from our friends at University of Greenwich for a different angle on the social life of Ottoman cities. Megan Rollins uses essential primary sources for the early modern empire, the travel narrative of Evlia Celebi, and the book of festivities illustrated by Abdul Jalil Levni to, il- to illuminate the colorful world of professional guilds in Ottoman cities. and welcome to my podcast. My name is Meg and today I shall be discussing guilds in the early modern Ottoman Empire using two primary sources to understand the relationship between guild and state. The guilds I am about to discuss are defined by Arnold Yildirim as urban industrial organisations in which manual work or handicraft production organised by the people of the same occupation who provided each other with mutual support and agreed to follow a number of internal rules. The primary sources I shall be using are Evlia Chalebi on the Istanbul Guilds in Robert Dankov and Suyong Kim's edited translation of An Ottoman Traveller, selection from the Book of Travels of Evlia Chalebi, and two miniature paintings of the Parade of the Guilds of Istanbul, Butchers, Cooks and Tanners by Abdul Salil Levni. These sources come as a pair and not as two separate paintings, and they come from the Suriname Vebi. Evliya Chalebi's text is an insight into the guild parade in Istanbul 1630. The parade was part of a quasi-military parade performed in front of the Sultan before Murad IV's campaign in Baghdad. He methodically goes through examples of various guilds that are participating in the parade. In his description, he includes the number of men and shops, their patron saints, from where they hail, what their product or craft consists of, who leads their guild and, in some instances, how important they were considered regarding their contributions to society. Guild of Circumcision Barbers. They are 400 men with 300 shops and their patron saint is Abul Hawakin Mohammed Ibn Taha Ibn Abdullah. Evliya Chalebi's text is a Sehatname. 
A Sehatname is a type of travel narrative and Evliya Chalebi is considered to be the Sehatname writer of his period. Evliya Chalebi's aim was to provide a complete description of the Ottoman Empire and its hinterlands, portraying himself as a sort of Sufi type blessed by Muhammad to travel. The second source is a pair of miniature paintings by Abdul Salil Levni that depict a scene from the Circumcision Festival of 1720. The festival was in honour of the circumcision of the sons of Ahmed III. The miniatures I have chosen to look at come as a pair and depict the butchers, cooks and tanners. The miniatures appear in the Surnamei Vebi. The Surnamei books were written to commemorate major festivals that occurred in the Ottoman Empire, such as weddings or circumcisions. The purpose of these Surnamei were to assert the old-time glory of the empire, the miniatures performing an imperial function upon their contemporary viewers. Interestingly, this particular Surnamei was the last of its kind. The Sultan appears in the right-hand miniature by Levni, the guild parade walking in front of where he is sat. Leading the parade is a shepherd with his rams, then following behind are kebab makers, a giant dummy, tanners, dancers, and a boy selling or pretending to sell hides. Within the parade, there are guildsmen carrying staffs. The procession is walking towards the Sultan, who is surrounded by other key political figures, such as the Grand Vizier. In the extract by Evliya Chalebi, he focuses on a situation in the parade that quickly escalates and gains the attention of the Sultan. The Egyptian grain merchants and the guilds of butchers find themselves quarrelling over who should pass behind the procession of Mediterranean captains. The argument gradually escalates in front of the Sultan. The butchers speak of the Quran and God, the religious significance of the trade. The grain merchants retaliate with a similar message. As for our lentils, they are mentioned in the Quran and lentils, and grow in the soil of paradise and in the water of Egypt, and are tastier and cook better than the lentils of Turkey. In the end, the Sultan, with the support of Yahya Effendi and Muid Ahmed Effendi, who cite the Hadith, grants a noble rescript to the Egyptian grain merchants to proceed first, the butchers second. Within the first extract, there is a clearly defined relationship between guilds and state. The guilds had to refer to the Hadith for mediation. It was not the Sultan who decided, but those doing the work of God. After the Effendis had consulted the Hadith and negotiated with the guilds from a religious perspective, the Sultan then imposed his political power upon the guildsmen in order to decide who was to proceed first. According to the religious scholars, the Egyptian grain merchants had more use to mankind, therefore deserved the authorization to go before the butchers. This religious aspect is also a reflection of the history of guilds. Some historians, such as Onir Yildirim, contest that the guilds evolved from religious brotherhoods known as Akis. Many Ottoman guilds seem to have designed their associations and commitments with reference to Futuwatnames, documents that enumerate a system of virtues such as modesty, self-abnegation and self-control, collectively known as Futuwa, and central to the constitution of the Aki Brotherhood. Honesty and morality were at the heart of early modern Ottoman guilds' ethics. Secondary to one's religious orientation, one's identity was shaped by the guild to which they belonged. The relationship between guild and religion was second to none, which is evident in the communication between the Alema and the guildsmen. Faraki, McGowan, Kratat and Pamuk argue that certain guilds in the 17th century were headed by religious elders, symbolising the link between guilds and Futavet, that is the moral principles of the Akis. Evidently, religion was at the heart of guilds above all else. Much like in Evliya Chalebi's text, the Sultan is the focal point of the visual source. The events around him are merely ornamental. 
This is evident in the miniatures as the Sultan is surrounded by more decoration than anyone else in the scene, and all the guildsmen are walking towards him, drawing the reader's eyes to the top right-hand corner of the scene. The ulema are also present in Levni's source, stood in front of the Sultan, watching the parade go by. In both sources, not only is there a clear political hierarchy, but a distinctive relationship between guild and state, guild and religion, and religion and state. Each complement each other in a sort of iron triangle of politics. From these miniatures, there is a visual depiction of the political hierarchy and the role of guilds in early modern Ottoman society. From the visual source, there is also the notable presence of a hive mind group mentality. The guildsmen are supporting and complementing each other in the procession, rather than competing for prestige or visibility. The kebab makers are doing as the tanners and butchers are, pretending to sell their product in a mobile market stall. There is no immediate sense that either of these guilds are attempting to contend with each other, unlike the kerfuffle between the butchers and grain merchants in Evliya Chalebi's text. The dummy is an interesting addition to the scene, with two heads, one male and bearded, the other female and holding a doll. It towers over the procession and little information is given regarding its relevance to the parade. Perhaps the dummy is part of the dancing performance that is going on in the parade, or perhaps he is an example of the craft of tanning. Either way, it complements the overall procession rather than distract from the guilds that surround it. It is not surprising that the guild parade Evliya Chalebi witnesses and the parade depicted by Levni both occur in Istanbul. Istanbul was the centre of Ottoman life, where the Sultan lived and where large numbers of craftspeople were active. However, from these sources, one could make the assumption that Istanbul was where the guilds were most active, when in reality, a substantial part of manufacturing activity took place in rural areas. From these sources, this is not evident, and in studying guilds in the early modern Ottoman Empire, these sources almost give an inaccurate representation of guild activity in the Ottoman realms. Despite the weakness in the sources regarding the accuracy of representation of guild life within and without Istanbul, the sources are reflective of the relationship between guild and government. Yildirim argues that guilds maintained a close relationship with the government in order to obtain license to sell commodities. This relationship is evident in both the written source and the visual. In Evliya's written source, the guildsmen plead with the Sultan in order to gain favour. In the visual source, the guild parade passes by very closely to the Sultan for the purpose of the Sultan's entertainment. Considering Evliya Chalebi was not writing for any particular purpose, it is noteworthy that he could get so close to the action between guildsmen and the Sultan. However, one must remember that Evliya Chalebi had a habit of swinging between the factual and the fanciful, in the words of Dankov and Kim. We must take what Evliya says with a pinch of salt. Evliya also has a habit of carefully choosing what appears in his Sehatname and what is omitted. The listener must remember that the Guild Parade was an exceptional event and not an everyday encounter. Evliya's decision to write about the Guild in this particular environment is not reflective of the everyday life of the Guildsmen. The relationship between Guild and State was much more subtle outside of the parade. Not only that, but within the broad framework of Ottoman imperial practices was there a considerable room for variation, argues Faraki, meaning that the guild was not representative of guild life as a whole in the Ottoman Empire. The guilds also did not represent the traders and craftsmen who were not associated with guilds, of which there were many. A similar argument may be made regarding the Levni miniatures. The miniatures depict a special occasion and not everyday life, and certainly not the life of common artisans outside the capital. The pair of miniatures I have chosen to look at depict the butchers, cooks and tanners, a small percentage of guildsmen in the Ottoman Empire. 
The tsunami in which Lebanese miniatures appear was commissioned by Sultan Ahmed, therefore negative imagery would not seep into the version of events Lebanese illustrates. I think a fair assumption to make would be that the guild did not get as close to the Sultan as is portrayed in the paintings, and that the event was not as neat and chaos-free as Levni would like us to believe. Little is written about this particular event, therefore we must also be hesitant in accepting Levni's source as entirely truthful. From the sources, one could assume that the state had full control over the guilds, when in actuality the guilds maintained a sense of autonomy. They had elected their own administrators and paid their own salaries. Faraki contests, whenever feasible, guildsmen also ignored those government decisions they considered unfair. Therefore, these sources are not particularly useful in understanding the relationship between guild and government. The written source implies that the guildsmen took the state's authority's gospel, whereas Faraki insists that this is not the case. These sources, however, are useful in understanding festivities in the Ottoman Empire. Both sources present a celebration of sorts and portray the integration of civilians in royal festivals. The sources are also useful in projecting the importance of the guild to Ottoman life. If they were not valued, there would be no reason for them to be included in such a prestigious parade. While Evliya Chalebi and Abdul Salil Levni's sources have their use, they must not be taken as gospel. The sources are laden with bias and project false optimism and only portray a specific version of events. There was a relationship of sorts between guild and government, but an accurate representation of that relationship cannot be found in these sources. I hope you've enjoyed my exploration of Evliya Chalebi and Abdul Salil's sources. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Thank you, Megan. To conclude, we'll move out from the urban guilds to connect the Ottomans back to the broader early modern world through the lens of artistic production, specifically examining how the stylistic motifs of Ottoman carpets became woven into the fabric of European art and architecture. In this podcast, Max Bechtold and Haley Holmes explore the circulation of the iconic quatrefoil shape contained within Turkish rugs throughout the early modern world. Hello, and welcome to Stories Ottoman Objects Tell. My name is Max Bechtold, and I'm here at Boston College with my friend Haley Holmes to talk to you about an Ottoman object. Haley, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, what we've got is a pretty common shape, the quatrefoil, which is a kind of cross-like shape and comes in all kinds of forms. Most typically, it's formed kind of like if you took a square and on each side curved the edge into a semicircle. It can be found everywhere, literally everywhere, from the logos of high fashion like Louis Vuitton to the design of everyday items. This is really true, which is fitting with our title today, Here a Quatrefoil, There a Quatrefoil, Everywhere a Quatrefoil, Ottoman Cultural Trade Through Geometric Imagery. Even here at Boston College, as you walk around, the shape is everywhere, and honestly, after learning a little bit about it, it it's become increasingly hard to miss. We've got it on chairs, on buildings, and light fixtures. The ubiquity of the design is really kind of amazing, just how far-reaching such a simple design element is. And that's really what this podcast is about. Right. As we look at the shape, which we know has Ottoman origins, we can see it spread into the artistic languages of all the cultures and nations the Ottomans met. By tracing the story of the quatrefoil, we can get a sense of the depth and nature of Ottoman cross-cultural exchanges, a story that's really at odds with the way many in the West view Anatolia and generally predominantly Muslim countries today. Our story begins with a pretty typical Ottoman carpet. 
This one, which was made in Ushak, Anatolia during the 16th century and resides today in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It has a pattern of alternating large quatrefoil medallions and smaller diamonds. Now this is a great example of a kind of atypical quatrefoil shape, a sort of more intricate, more showy version of the shape we see everywhere. The main geometric shape is there. It's symmetrical with four points evenly coming out of each side. The artist really played with the shape here, but what's interesting about it is that it really lines up with one of the stories of the shape's origin, that it possibly was inspired by cloud patterns on Chinese silk. A really pretty cool example of this Chinese-Ottoman connection came to light in the late 90s. In 1994, at the bottom of the Red Sea, a shipwreck was found nestled among coral reefs near Sandana Island off the coast of Egypt from the Ottoman period. Under about 40 meters of water was found the ship holding thousands of pounds of Chinese goods from the Qing Dynasty. Excavators were able to collect over 4,000 items, despite the fact that it's located near a sea resort, and it's estimated that there were originally over 12,000. These were predominantly porcelain goods, which notably were designed with floral and geometric patterns. This indicates that these goods were indeed from China with the intent of being sold in Arab markets who had similar artistic imagery. A volume of this nature really is a testament to the consistency and size of the Ottoman market for Chinese goods and vice versa. Another place we know there is a strong Ottoman trade connection is in Venice, and here the quatrefoil abounds both artistically and architecturally. The integration of this design is so strong that even in paintings depicting scenes of all varieties, one can find a quatrefoil. A perfect example of this can be found in Paris Bourdon's 1534 painting, The Presentation of the Ring, where you can see a quatrefoil pattern in beneath the carpet of the Doge, who was the leader of the Venetian Senate. The painting itself depicts a scene where a gondolier recounts a battle he just witnessed between demons and St. Mark, the patron saint in Venice, to the Doge. The Doge doesn't believe the gondolier until he's presented with the ring of St. Mark. This shocks everyone because the ring was supposed to be in the church treasury the whole time. These sort of Ottoman carpets, it turns out, were fairly common as far as luxury goods go. Their intricacies amazed European elites and were quick to become symbols of status. They were even considered holy in some respects because of their incredible value and thus can be seen incredibly often in religious contexts like the presentation of the ring. Not all Venetian quatrefoils are subtle. Walking through the Piazza San Marco, the most striking artistic element is the quatrefoil pattern on the Doge Palace. This palace itself was built to house the leader of Venice, and above its second-floor promenade, wrapping around the piazza and the canal sides, is a line of quatrefoils. Here, in this most quintessential Renaissance building, the quatrefoil stands as a testament to Venice's Ottoman connections. In Florence, we can see the way this quatrefoil shape really took hold as a part of the Italian Christian style. On Andrea Pisano's baptistry doors, each panel is defined by a quatrefoil surrounding depictions of Christ's life. Architecturally, the quatrefoil hit its stride in the Gothic style of France, where it can be found in the windows and detail features of thousands of cathedrals. A great example of this is in the Notre-Dame-de-Rheims Cathedral in northwestern France. Predominantly on the front facade, right as you walk up to the church, you can see the quatrefoil design in the rose window. Gothic artists and architects really took the quatrefoil and ran with it. They put it in windows, on doors, on chairs, and tiles. Three-pointed versions called trefoil and five-pointed cinquefoil versions. These Ottoman shapes fit well with the pointed nature of Gothic designs and found a home among the pointed arches, flying buttresses, and other stylistic elements that are foilistic, for lack of a better term, in nature. The quatrefoil in Renaissance and Gothic art shows us the subtlety and depth to which Ottoman culture was absorbed into European artistic culture. 
This sort of exchange was made possible by contacts like that of the joint warfare of French King François I and Suleiman I of the Ottoman Empire. In 1543, both regimes were coming into power. France had finally pushed England out of all but Calais in the north, and the Ottomans had just taken Constantinople a few decades before. Now both were facing the same threat, Charles V and his newly powerful Holy Roman Empire. Together, the two regimes fought down the Italian coasts. Their cohesion at the time was certainly not guaranteed, as Suleiman knew that the French alliance was based purely off of their goal of stopping Holy Roman aggression. He knew if Francois I was able to reach an agreement in a treaty with Charles V, their multilateral approach would be finished. However, despite this, the Ottomans remained committed, and in their attacking were sure to spare any papal lands as France was allied with them. In this way, the two regimes worked almost as one. They fought together, harbored together in Antibes and Marseille. There was even talk of the Ottomans keeping a standing navy in the French Mediterranean to be present as a deterring force. It was in contexts like these that Ottoman ideas spread. Among the transfer of knowledge and goods was an artistic sensibility. This is where the quatrefoil fits in. Its origins aren't known precisely, but its presence links the cultures and nations who love it. Its beauty is as simple and elegant as the idea it inspires, one of a connected world which shares in an artistic past. Thanks to Max and friends for that very well-produced and concise episode. With that, Season 7 of Ottoman History Podcast has come to a close. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in to this special student-driven episode and all our installments over the past year. We look forward to bringing you more great material this summer. See you then, and until next time, take care. Take care.